Well, here we are, the first Sunday of Advent, and it's supposed to be 60 degrees today. Go figure. I think it was about 60 last week with cold weather in between, so who knows what the month of December will hold for us as far as the weather, but um, regardless, we are celebrating the Advent season, walking through it together this month. And as Wayne shared earlier in the service, Advent is, uh, consists of the, the Sundays leading up to Christmas in which we reflect on Jesus' coming, His first coming, but also the fact that we look forward to His coming again. And Advent also trains us in the discipline of waiting, waiting to uh, learning to wait on God and to trust in Him and depend on Him and not in ourselves. And so that's kind of the overarching theme of this season, if you are new to this term, Advent. And we are going to be working through an Advent sermon series over the next few Sundays, and the title of it is The Branch. And we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 11 this morning. So I invite you to either turn there in your Bibles or to refer to your worship guide, which has the passage printed for you. We're going to be walking through this passage of Scripture, this chapter together over the next few weeks. And this morning, we're going to focus in on verses 1 through 5. But particularly as we enter into the Advent season, I want us to think about how the entrance of God into the world shapes everything, shapes the way that we live. Our passage, written by the prophet Isaiah some 700 years before the birth of Jesus, stirs up longings inside of us, longings that are common and familiar to each and every one of us. And it brings these longings to the surface. And I want to warn you ahead of time that if you open yourself to this passage, your longings and the things that you look to for rescue are going to be exposed. So let me read the chapter for us, and then I'm going to pray, and then we'll get into it together. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 16. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel. And might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked." Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover.
cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people, from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart, and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. But they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west, and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites shall obey them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt, and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath, and strike it into seven channels, and he will lead people across in sandals. And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people, as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, come to us now, we pray. Abide in us, abide with us. Draw us into your word that we might experience its truth. You know where we are this morning, Holy Spirit, as we enter this Advent season. For many of us, we have been waiting all year for this month. And we begin this month with great excitement and enthusiasm, but others of us have been dreading this month all year round. For this month reminds us of what we lack. It reminds us of the absence of people in our lives. And maybe it brings, reminds us of sorrow. Holy Spirit, you know where we are this morning. We pray that you would help us to know your rescue in fresh ways this morning as we look into your word. We pray that we would know your rescue this morning Maybe for the millionth time, but some of us for the first time, we pray that you would come and find us and bring your word to bear so that it might bear fruit in our lives. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our rescuer. Amen. A few years ago, I came across a, an online video from the Wired News website. And this video consisted of people standing in front of the video camera making holiday wishes with a haunting melody playing in the background. I want a better job. I want to be successful. I wish for complete acceptance. I wish for a boyfriend. I wish for world peace. And it went on and on and on. As I watched the video, what struck me was how much I identified with the wishes, the longings of each person that came in front of the camera. Now, while my wishes may have been different in some ways, I shared the longing that was behind these words. I shared the longing for something more. And I know that you do as well as you enter into this Advent season this morning. 
I'm reminded of a quote from an author named Donald Miller that also has stuck with me for years ever since I read it. He says this, when I watch the news, it makes me wish deep down for another time, another, for another place that has a king who is good. What about you? Deep down inside, do you wish for another time, for another place where there is a king who is good? I told you that if you open yourself to this passage, to Isaiah chapter 11, that all of your longings are going to come to the surface and they're going to get exposed. And let me say this at the beginning of this, this sermon, that that is a good thing. That is a good thing. I know that it is scary so often for our longings to come to the surface. We try to keep them below the surface because we don't always know what to do with them. But I want to encourage you to allow the Holy Spirit to bring those longings to the surface this morning because Isaiah 11 is going to help us navigate, navigate those longings together. It comes down to this. Each and every one of us longs for rescue. We long for rescue. As we look at our own personal lives, as we look out at the world around us, we, if we are honest, would have to admit that we need, that we long for some kind of rescue. Why? Because we are haunted by the brokenness of the now. You see, Isaiah chapter 11 points our eyes, it points our direction, it points our vision to a future time, but we are not there. Now we are haunted by the brokenness of the now, and we don't know what to do with it, and we look for rescue in all kinds of ways, and most of those ways are destructive and unhealthy. You know that. Now, at this point, you might be expecting a fairly simplistic message. You may be thinking that you have it all figured out at this point. We need longing, and I know who the, the rescuer is. It's Jesus, right? That kind of is the sermon. But there's more to it than that. As we get into this passage, I want you to realize something. Israel, at the time that this passage was written, was looking for security, for stability, for rootedness, an anchor. And like Israel, we too are restless. We look to other strategies to help us cope with the brokenness of the now that haunts us. And the story of the Bible centers on God's promise to come to us, to ultimately undo the brokenness. But we struggle to build our lives around this promise. So here's what I want to do with the first five verses of Isaiah chapter 11 this morning. We're going to acknowledge that this passage tells us that the true king, the good king, has come, and that we must find our rescue in him. And I want to consider two questions this morning. And the questions are, are this, who is this and what does he do? Who is this rescuer and what exactly is it that he does? So let's begin with who he is. Isaiah chapter 10, the, the chapter... Um, Immediately before this, I know you're surprised, 10 comes right before 11. Um, the concluding verses of chapter 10, in those verses, Isaiah portrays for us basically the destruction of arrogant human evil as the falling of a vast forest. That's how chapter 10 concludes. 
And then he picks up with this chapter, with verse 1. Look at verse 1 with me. He says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. It's a picture of something emerging from nothing. It's the imagery of a tree that has been cut down. No signs of vitality of life. David's house is referred to here. Israel has been reduced to a stump. David's house, Israel, they've been reduced to a stump is the picture that's being provided for us. But Isaiah tells us something, that a shoot will come out of this stump, and this shoot will eventually emerge, become a whole new creation. It will become something of vitality. This stump of Jesse, it's not just another king, like David. David was Jesse's son. This isn't just another king in the line of kings that Israel was used to. This is someone altogether different. Who is this someone? This someone is the Messiah. We might um, define the Messiah as the anointed one. In the New Testament, the language or title that's used is Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the one who we all long for. Now, you might be surprised, maybe even a little bit offended when you hear me say the one that we all long for, because you may be with us this morning and you don't consider yourself to be a Christian. You don't believe that Jesus is who he claims to be. But I want to say this to you if you fall into that category this morning. You long for rescue. You long for rescue. And maybe you're not used to thinking of it in these terms, and you would need to do some reflection to process this, but I think that you would discover, you would be able to identify in your life that you truly do long for rescue. And it gets expressed in all of the things that you attach yourself to for life, for wholeness, for vitality. You do that because you long for rescue. The Messiah is presented as a shoot or twig growing from a stump after God's judgment. He is a greater David. He is the world's true king. Remember the Donald Miller quote that I shared? When I watch the news, it makes me wish deep down for another time and place that has a king who is good. I don't know about you, but these days, that quote resonates with me even more. It's almost unbearable to read the news these days, because the news is almost always, at least what we hear about, is almost always negative, right? We're reminded of everything that is wrong with the world, including our political leaders who lack character or who do not represent what we think they should represent. And it goes on and on and on. And like I said, this quote resonates with me, particularly right now in my life. I long for another time, another place where, where, that has a king who is good. Isaiah chapter 11 is speaking into that context. And Isaiah is, through this imagery, saying to us, that king exists. 
That good king, that the world's true king, has actually really come. He has entered into the world. He has entered into human history. Listen to how Isaiah describes this king. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Now, if you are familiar with the biblical story, you know that God's people always have the spirit of God resting upon them. But this anointing of the spirit that Isaiah is talking about here is deeper. It's greater than the anointing that you or I may have as a Christian. This anointing is what sets Jesus apart. It sets him apart as the rescuer, the true king, the anointed one. And notice what this fullness of the spirit, this anointing of the spirit allows him to to have, to possess wisdom and understanding in terms of how he exercises his leadership. Is that not what we want from our leaders in the world today? We want them to have wisdom and understanding, and we want them to exercise leadership in a way that reflects that, of counsel and might, the ability to not only have knowledge and wisdom, but to be able to carry it out. And then finally, knowledge of the fear of the Lord. Now, you will probably remember if you were here for the Proverbs series that we had on wisdom just before we began this series, this phrase, fear of the Lord, came up uh, occasionally throughout that series. And that phrase, fear of the Lord, does not mean to dread the Lord, to be terrified of Him, to be scared of Him. It means to revere Him, to be in all of Him, to build your life around Him. And so this rescuer that is being spoken of has the fullness of the Spirit in wisdom and understanding of counsel and might and of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Notice something. This true king is the ideal true human being. I was blown away by this as I started studying the passage, and I was just um, realizing all of the connections between Isaiah chapter 11 and the wisdom literature of Proverbs that we just looked at. We, 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 t- we talked about practical wisdom, right? What it means to have wisdom and to be able to use it in life. The rescuer, the anointed one, has that, and he is able to utilize it perfectly. He's able to relate to people, places, and things in God's world in the way that it was designed. And so this a rescuer is both divine but also human. And as far as the human aspect of it goes, he is the ideal true human being. He lives life in the way that God intended. This rescuer is not abstract, or the announcement of this rescuer is not abstract. It's not generic. Um, I point this out because I honestly think that so much of religion and spirituality is incredibly abstract. We um, talk about spirituality, we do spirituality, so to speak, in such a way that we ignore the broken realities of life. It's as though the spiritual life has nothing to do with that. We're we're trying to escape the broken realities of life by ignoring them. 
But that's not what's going on in this passage. Notice the context into which this is being spoken. This announcement comes in the midst of war and brokenness, in the midst of gloom and darkness, in the midst of rawness of pain and disappointment. Just when we think it cannot happen, remember the end of Isaiah 10, the desolation that 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 chapter concludes with, just when we think it cannot happen, this is how God comes. When we least expect it, when we're most surprised by it, he enters into the brokenness of the now. I want you to, to feel the importance of this. That the God of Christianity is not a God who is abstract, it's not a God who is distant, is not a God that uh, expects us to ignore the broken realities of life, but rather he is a God who comes to us in the midst of them. No, no other religion can claim this. No other approach to life that we might take can accomplish this because all other religions, all other human approaches to life inevitably place the focus on what we must do to navigate the, the brokenness of the now. But the, in the Christian story, it's different. God comes to us. He enters in, and he doesn't just enter in um, in the happiness, the joy of life, he enters into the struggle of life. And it makes sense of the life of Jesus when we consider the New Testament. Jesus' life from birth to death was one of struggle. It was one of struggle. In Jesus coming to us, he identifies with the human struggle, but he brings something to it that we cannot bring to it. And that is divine grace from the outside to actually remedy the situation that we're in. What does he do? So this, we've, we've, we've talked about who he is. He is the world's true king. He's the Messiah. He's that king that we long for. What does he do? Look at verse 3. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. He fears the Lord. He does justly, righteously, and faithfully, and he executes judgment. These are the, the three things, at least, that we see from these verses that this, the world's true king does. He fears the Lord. We already uh, touched on this. But this fearing of the Lord is so critical because it's in contrast to the way in which all other human beings live naturally. Naturally, because of our disposition against God, because the Bible says that we are sinners, meaning that we are bent toward living for ourselves. We, we displace God. We don't want God to be God. We want to assert ourselves as God and manage and rule life on our own. It's the, the epitome of human pride and arrogance. Fear of the Lord 
is in contrast to this. The fear of the Lord, we talked about this in the Proverbs series, is ultimately humility. It's humility. It's recognizing that you're not smart enough, you're not wise enough, you're not powerful enough to navigate the brokenness of the now. You are in desperate need of help from the outside. Jesus, in his coming, feared the Lord. He also does justly, righteously, and faithfully. Says that he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor. This is one who is all-knowing, all-seeing. And he exercises his leadership with equity, with justice. This is the world's true king. This is the one that we long for deep down inside. We long for a king, for a ruler like this, who has regard for the weak and vulnerable, who does not forget them, who does not become obsessed with power like his so many of our human leaders are prone to do. He has power, but how does he exercise his power? For the good of others, for the benefit of others, particularly, Scripture tells us, for those who are most vulnerable in the world. This is a characteristic, um, a, a central characteristic of the world's true king. This characteristic is mentioned throughout Scripture, um, both Old Testament and New Testament, um, when it comes to uh, describing God's reign, His rule. What is it like for God to reign and to rule? Well, one thing you can count on in most passages of Scripture is that He cares for those who are vulnerable. Now, I want to talk about this activity of God exercising judgment now, because this, what I'm going to say might surprise you. God exercising judgment is often in Scripture intimately connected to, intimately tied to his care for those who are most vulnerable, his concern for those who are most vulnerable. And you see the connections very clearly in these verses. After talking about how he... Um, judges disputes uh, with righteousness and judges the poor. He decides with equity for the meek of the earth. It immediately from there goes into talking about wrath, right? Judgment. Now, this puts us in, this brings us into a category that makes us, many of us, uncomfortable. We don't like talking about wrath and, and anger and judgment in general, let alone when it comes to God. Maybe we tell ourselves, I can't worship a God like that. I can't worship a God who uh, is a God of wrath and who exercises judgment because God has to be a God of love. But I, I want you to see something. Here's how Scripture comes at it. God exercises judgment. He sometimes is a God of wrath because He is a God of love. All right? God exercises judgment and is a God of wrath because he is a God of love. A few weeks ago, uh, I shared with you uh, about an experience I had um, when I went to a conference in Cincinnati at the end of October. 
during that conference, we went to the Freedom Center in downtown Cincinnati. And the Freedom Center is devoted to, it's a museum devoted to the history of slavery, um, not only in our country, mostly it focuses on our country, but also slavery worldwide throughout history. And I shared with you when I talked about this in a sermon a few weeks ago, how weighty this was, how heavy it was. I mean, a lot of times when you go into a museum, it's pretty quiet anyway, right? That's, at least that's how it should be. Um, but this took quiet to a whole other level. And it wasn't just simply silence. You could feel the weight. You could actually feel the heaviness as people walked around viewing the exhibits. You could just see it in their faces. We all shared the same human reaction. This is almost unbearable to have to be reminded of. And I found myself really, really, really sad. Sad that this was true of our country, but also sad that human trafficking, human slavery, things like that continue today. But I also found myself, guess what? Really, really angry. Angry that this happens in the world today. Angry at those who could take advantage of children or women and, and, and um, manipulate them for sex trafficking or whatever it might be. I found myself really angry about this. Feeling like somebody needs to do something about this immediately. I'm getting angry now. What do you feel about my anger? I'm going to guess that none of you think that my anger is unfounded. I'm going to assume that you all think that you should be angry about that. And maybe you're even getting angry as I'm telling this story to you. Now let's make the connection back to God. Why is it that we feel like it is actually righteous to be really angry about so much of the brokenness of the world, but yet, and I'm not saying this is true of all of us, but yet, when it comes to our view of God, we put God in a box and say, you must not be angry. You must not be a God of wrath. But God feels anger and wrath more than any of us could fathom. Because he enters into the struggle. That's Isaiah chapter 11. He enters into it, and on the cross, Jesus absorbed it on the cross. He took it all upon himself. God can feel the depths of anger and wrath in ways that we can't fathom because God is a God of love in ways that we cannot fathom. One of the most um, helpful, every time I talk about wrath and God's judgment in a sermon, I share at least one of these quotes, but sometimes both. So if you've heard it from me before, um, you're not losing your mind, you have. And if you think, I feel like I've heard it from you uh, before, like multiple times, you're not losing your mind, it's true. Um, Becky Pippert, is, um, she has devoted her life to telling people about Jesus and helping um, to articulate the truth of Jesus in ways that our culture can understand. Um, but she writes this, Think how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions and relationships. 
Do we respond with benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? Far from it. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. If I, a flawed, narcissistic, sinful woman, can feel this much pain and anger over someone's condition, how much more a morally perfect God who made them? God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but his settled opposition to the cancer of sin, which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. His whole being. I would argue that if there is no God, then we can't really be outraged morally over evil and wickedness in this world. I know that you might disagree with me, argue with me on that, but that is my, my belief, and it has to do with this very point of who God is and us being made in his image. When we remove God as judge, we think that it's liberating at first, because we might think, well, I mean, it could be two possibilities. One, I can live how I want. I don't need God's authority over my life telling me how to live. That, that could be one. But it could just simply be, I, I can't handle, I can't deal with a God of judgment. And so we kind of maybe throw that out the window. And it feels liberating at first. But then what? But then what? We need... Yes, need a God of divine judgment. Miroslav Wolf is a Croatian theologian, and he says this, If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make the final end to violence, God would not be worthy of our worship. I am less interested in arguing that God's violence is not unworthy of God than in showing that it is actually beneficial to us. Most people who insist on God's non-violence cannot resist using violence themselves. They deem the talk of God's judgment irrelevant, but think nothing of entrusting judgment into human hands, persuaded presumably that this is less dangerous and more humane than to believe in a God who judges. My thesis, that the practice of non-violence requires a belief in divine vengeance, will be unpopular with many Christians especially theologians in the West. To the person who is inclined to dismiss it, I suggest imagining that you are delivering a lecture in a war zone, which is where a paper that underlies this chapter was originally delivered. Among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have been plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers had their throats slit. The topic of the lecture, a Christian attitude toward violence. The thesis, we should not retaliate since God is perfect, non-coercive love. Soon you would discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die. Divine judgment is necessary. And divine judgment, believe it or not, is good news. I echo Miroslav Wolf. I think that I personally would have to walk away from the faith if God was not a God of judgment. If God was not a God who got angry over the injustices in our world. 
How do we close this? Where do we go with this? Well, in the coming weeks, we're going to see this new world that this ruler, this king births in his, his coming. But I want to leave you with just two thoughts um, from the first five, five verses this morning. The first is this. Receive the rescue of this king. Receive the rescue of this king. We all long for it deep down inside, like we've said from the beginning. We long for rescue. We long for somebody from the outside to come in and make things right. Admit, confess that you are unable to do this in your own strength and power. And consider the uniqueness of this one that Isaiah 11 speaks of. Receive the rescue that he has provided in his coming, in his life, his death, and his resurrection on your behalf. Give up on arrogant pride and trust in self. The second thing is this. Put on the Messiah. Put on the Messiah. Another way of saying this is be clothed with the Messiah. What do I mean by this? Ephesians chapter 6. If you want to, you can uh, turn there. Ephesians chapter 6. Um, there's the, it's the last chapter of the letter to the Ephesians, and Paul concludes the letter with this section on the armor of God. Maybe um, you, you've heard of this before, if you've had any exposure to the Bible and church, you've heard this phrase, the armor of God. Well, did you know that Paul is actually referencing Isaiah chapter 11 in this chapter? Paul writes this, "...finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might." Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm." Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Paul has Isaiah chapter 11 in mind as he writes about the armor of God. What's the point? The point is this, that when we receive the rescue of this king, when we receive the rescue of the Messiah, we are brought into his kingdom. We are brought under his leadership, under his rule. And this rule, this leadership is a loving rule. It's a rule that is oriented around helping us to thrive and flourish, become who we were meant to be in God's image. But we're also given this incredible invitation as the people of the king, to help extend the rule of his kingdom. How do we do that? We do that by putting on the Messiah, being clothed in him, so that increasingly what is true of him becomes true of us. As we rest and receive his rescue, he shapes us and makes us more like himself. And this point is so key as we're... Um, 
It really sets the stage for our remaining sermons in this chapter. Because so often, when we are confronted with the brokenness of the now, what do many of us do if you're like me? Activism kicks in. We immediately uh, seek out what we must do to help bring wholeness and healing to a world that needs it. And on the one hand, that is something to be commended. Action is essential. It's necessary. But as God's people, we are called to put on the character first of our Messiah. To grow in likeness, his likeness. So that the activism that we go out in the world to do is an activism that points to his rule and reign and invites others into the life-giving nature of his kingdom. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the good and true ruler. You are the king that we so desperately need and want deep down inside. I pray that you would clarify that truth for us this morning. I pray that you would draw us to yourself, that we might receive your rescue. And I pray that you would teach us to clothe ourselves with you with what is important to you, with your heart, with what you call us to. And I pray that as we are clothed with you and by you, that you would send us out into this world, into the brokenness of the now, in order to testify and bear witness to the, the reality that your kingdom has come and one day it will come in all of its fullness. Jesus, bring your kingdom and use us for your glory, we pray. Amen.